If you go to a traditional retreat, Buddhist retreat in Asia, the Zen monastery in Japan, or a beginning of uh, the rains retreats for monastics in Southeast Asia, there is uh, at the beginning of retreat a ritual that um, evokes loving kindness, that uh, evokes loving kindness to the area in which the retreat is happening, to the villagers, the people around you, to the spirits, to the animals, to the, to the nature around you. And that's kind of the beginning of the retreat, is this evocation of loving kindness. And for this talk today, um, I would like, I would hope or aspire that this talk could be an evocation of compassion, that we uh, understand that the context for our retreat this week together, uh, one of the contexts for it is compassion. The compassion of the Buddha, the compassion of our fellow retreatants here, the compassion of many practitioners down through the ages, and your compassion. And that uh, one of the things we're doing here is negotiating the world of compassion, discovering the world of compassion, and learning how to um, kind of walk through our world, into our world, with our world, with a compassionate heart. It's one of the most beautiful things of a, uh, of a human being, of the human heart, is the com- instinct for compassion. And um, I think it's a world that we live in that needs a lot of it. Uh, there's, uh, I think there's a, I would say there's a shortage of it, if you look around the world. And the people who uh, actively are concerned with cultivating it, developing it, and acting of it, I think are doing the world a tremendous service, um, not only from what they do, but also from the example this is possible. The classic training for Buddhism is a training in compassion and wisdom. And the two are really intertwined. And sometimes it's compassion and wisdom are called the, the, the wings of the bird of Buddhism. And for the bird to fly, it needs to have both wings. And so the, uh, these wings of compassion and wisdom work very closely together and really feed each other and need each other um, in order to really function uh, well. And, um, and the, the whole enterprise or the whole path of Buddhism that was designed by the Buddha and for the many uh, you know, uh, teachers down through the ages was a response to some of the most uh, uh, challenging existential human issues that people have. Um, it doesn't, uh, I don't have to remind you explicitly of the degree of suffering that people are capable of experiencing in this lifetime. And, um, and rather than letting that suffering, letting, letting us be ourselves be a victim to that suffering, the, um, the path was designed as a very noble and dignified way of addressing the existential and human issues of our life and, uh, and find... What's called liberation or freedom in the midst of it, and you call, all of you have come here to Spirit Rock. It's a Buddhist center, and not far from what we're all about is this path to that liberation. That path that takes us into and through some of the most challenging and difficult places of human life. That takes us also uh, through uh, to and through some of the most beautiful aspects of a human life, and uh, all of which is hopefully mediated through your heart, through your heartfulness.
Here's a story. At the beginning of every year, the abbess would meet with the new monks and nuns who had joined the monastery the preceding year. Pack your bags, she would say. I am taking you on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. Knowing of the pilgrimages to the places in India where the Buddha was born, enlightened, first thought, taught, and died, the new monastics couldn't believe their good fortune, especially because after their first, day, first few months in the monastery, so that was meant to be a joke. <laughs> Your first day here, what are you up to? <laughs> the first uh, few months in the monastery, some of the new residents were bored, some were restless, and some were unsure why they were there. Does that sound familiar? Um, on the day of, the, of departure, all the older monks and nuns in the monastery stood by the gate to send off the abbess and the new monastics. Leading the group, the abbess first took them to a hospital. There they visited the sick. Then the abbess took the group to an old age home. The new monastics, many who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age. The abbess then took them to a hospice. In the hours there, they spent time with people in all stages of dying. The last few hours were spent in silent vigil with someone who had just died. The abbess then led the group back to the monastery. There they visited a nun sick in the infirmary. The new monastics were struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated through the tired eyes of the patient. Then they went to visit the oldest resident of the monastery, a 96-year-old monk. The group was awed by the love and acceptance that shone forth from the toothless, frail, and stooped man. Next, the abbess took them to the hospice wing of the monastery. Here they were introduced to a nun who, only days away from her death, radiated a palpable peace that lingered within them for hours after. Finally, the abbess took the monastics to the meditation hall. When they were all seated, she said, You have seen the holy sights. These are the sights that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, you will no longer be troubled when you encounter old age, sickness, and death. So I imagine that some of you have already done the pilgrimage and have seen the holy sites. But has it been holy for you? Has it been sacred for you? Or has it been uh, something that brought you fear or despair or confusion, anger? What has happened to you when you've encountered these things? And so Buddhism is designed for us to meet these things and find our peace with them. And a lot of that has to do with cultivating wisdom and cultivating compassion. And compassion, uh, for me, is associated with kind of a gentle, a certain kind of a gentle gentleness and tenderness that receives and feels the suffering of others and ourselves and then is motivated to act on it or, or wants to alleviate that. And so compassion has these two qualities to it. It's both uh, involves a willingness to feel, but not just to feel. But if we only kind of felt empathy, uh, I think it wouldn't be enough. Uh, you can feel empathy, you can feel the feelings of other people who have hate, and there's no compassion in feeling their hate. But there's kind of an ethical quality to compassion 
um, where we don't just feel what someone's feeling, but we feel their suffering. So if someone's hating, we don't just feel their hate, but we feel the suffering that's part of that. And, and, um, and then, uh, and even sometimes when there's a lot of joy, uh, someone who really knows what's going on can feel some, also some compassion. Um, I've known people who felt a lot of compassion uh, for couples who got married. <laughs> you, you know, there's a lot of joy too. That's good to feel empathy for, but you probably don't know what you're up to and what you're in store for. The um, so the uh, but to feel somehow that uh, feel and uh, but to feel it um, uh, in a, in a very particular way. And what I like to uh, I like to differentiate between two kinds of compassion. And, um, and I think, you know, they're not hard and fast categories, and maybe these categories won't work for you, but I'd like to offer these. And I like to think of uh, there's a compassion uh, of the head and compassion of the heart. And compassion of the head is that compassion that comes from our thoughts and our ideas. That we see, we see maybe we feel even something in the world, but we have thoughts about it. I should respond. There's a person over there. I'm here. I can do something. This is what I could do for this person. Um, it looks like this person's in trouble, has problems, and I can imagine my thoughts go in my imagination, what this means and where this is going. Um, there's a lot that can happen through the head, but um, uh, it's not where... Uh, it's, it's one kind of compassion mediated through our thoughts and our ideas. The other is the compassion that's mediated through the heart, through how we feel. And uh, this is a very important form of compassion because it's the kind of compassion that is most <clears throat> fully evoked when we're relaxed. And sometimes people don't associate being relaxed with being compassionate because if, if you're really compassionate for someone in dire suffering, um, it, it's easy to feel worried or anxious or, or tighten up around it. But if we tighten up and get anxious, we, there might still be compassion, but then it becomes compassion of the head. Our reactivity and our thoughts and our fears about what this is all about tend to, I call it the head here, uh, it tends to be a way we get preoccupied and caught and fixated on something. Compassion of the heart does not involve fixation. Compassion of the heart comes when we're relaxed. And so, for example, uh, it's said that one of the near enemies of compassion is, um, is um, uh, distress. And you, you feel distress around the suffering around us, but the distress involves somehow we're fixating the, the situation around our own fears, things that we're afraid of ourselves. And then we get kind of tight up or locked up in our fears or our concerns. And so there's a pre, the mind gets preoccupied. If the mind is preoccupied, if our thoughts and our concerns are well, preoccupation, it becomes kind of like a covering that covers over the sensitivity of the heart. For the heart to be sensitive, it, the mind can't be preoccupied. So, you know, so there's many ways of being preoccupied that we lose touch with parts of who we are. If I am uh, completely preoccupied with um, you know, anything. If I'm preoccupied with the rain and, um, and not getting wet, 
I might be kind of rushing and not paying attention to where I'm walking and I could step on a little bug because I'm so fixated or concerned about my little problem of getting wet. And so there's many ways in which we get kind of preoccupied on something and that limits the natural sensitivity and openness of our, our, our sense world, what we can sense and feel. And a, um, the heart, the compassionate heart, is something that operates when we're relaxed. And this is a remarkable thing because it means that uh, there's, if you stay close to the compassionate heart, then uh, the movement to get to tense up or to get worried or anxious takes you away from that place. If you want to stay close to the compassionate heart, you have to learn how to stay relaxed and soft, tender or open or relaxed. And it's a remarkable training to train oneself to stay close to that place, to stay relaxed in the midst of suffering, to stay relaxed and open in the midst of great difficulty, to stay relaxed and open in situations that uh, in many ways feel very uncomfortable. And that is one of the things we're doing here in training ourselves to do on retreat, is it's a training in staying present and open, to stay equanimous with what is going on. And I I think one of the most significant, powerful things that happened to me in my retreats, and hopefully this will happen to some of you, or has happened to some of you, is not so much the cultivation of mindfulness and attention, not so much the cultivation of wisdom, maybe not even the cultivation of compassion, but it's the cultivation of presence. To learn to be present, simple presence, simple being present, for our experience. I learned that a lot through my own Zen training because Zen, the way I was trained in Zen was I was not given a lot of instruction. And it's uh, both the strength and the weakness of our Vipassana tradition is we, 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 from a Zen point of view, we tell you way too much. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we do you a tremendous disservice by telling you all that we do about how to practice and do this and that. Because then we get, it's too easy when you have too many instructions and ideas of what's supposed to happen to get preoccupied, to have, be fixated and have idea and go into that head kind of mode. Something has to happen, ideas and this and that. And, um, and uh, so because they didn't give any instruction in Zen, except they told me, um, sit up straight and be present. That's kind of like what they said. And, um, and so, and I was young and naive and, you know, didn't think for myself too much, I guess, or something. And uh, uh, so, I, that's what I did. <laughs> and I just sat there and tried to be present. And I, I didn't even know enough that I should get concentrated. I didn't know much about Buddhism, so I wasn't trying to get concentrated. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I was supposed to not suffer. I hadn't read enough about Buddhism to know that. So I just knew I was supposed to stay present. So I stayed present for my suffering. And when I was a new, new practitioner in Buddhism, I had plenty of suffering. And uh, I had a lot of, um, you know, I can go through the litany of things that I had, but uh, and I would, uh, uh, I would uh, cry, sob at times because of it. I would um, uh, be filled with guilt. I thought that guilt was short for guilt. And, um, you know, and uh, I had had a lot of physical pain. It was not easy for me to sit cross-legged when I was young. 
my, my body wasn't somehow made for it. I was tight, and who knows what all the reasons. And um, and then in Zen, they just made it harder because you know it's like you're not allowed to move, <laughs> so you had to sit there. So I sat there and sat there and sat there, just being present. And it might conventionally, easily, I think, saying, "Well, that was stupid." But I'm so grateful for that time. It, was, it really shaped me, in a, I think, in a very important way. And it taught me how to be present, how to get out of my way, how not to get reactive and caught up in my fears and concerns about what's happening, but just be present for what's happening. Uh, be present without needing to fix it or change it. And in a sense, kind of relaxed around it. And I found that this pres- the practice of presence um, I described as a, as a tenderizer of the heart. It's kind of like you put tenderizer on tough meat and it softens. So the crusts of my heart kind of fell away. And it was a real surprise to me to discover uh, the growth of compassion within me. Uh, compassion was not an uh, a, uh, active word in my vocabulary when I was a new practitioner. And I was not interested in compassion. It was not a concern of mine. And if anything, it was an enlightenment or something. You know, it wasn't really... Um, you know, the compassion thing just didn't fit, meet, you know, come into the radar. And, um, and what happened in my early years of practice was I didn't get any more enlightened or wise or anything, I felt. But, but the amazing thing happened, and I only realized in retrospect, was I was compassionate. And that's what I hope for all of you, that you, this process, that you get compassionate. That's one of the things going on here that you evoke compassion, that you hold your situation in compassion, hold your fellow retreatants in compassion, uh, hold it with kind of the simple presence of a, of a present heart, simple openness of a gentle and tender heart that can be here and allow things to be as they are, that things don't have to be different. And I know on the first day of the retreat, it can be difficult. And some of you have already talked about it. Uh, it's uh, difficult for some people because it's really tired. You're really tired. And your efforts to be mindful and present are hopeless. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're, you're told to follow your breath and be on your breath. And like, what breath? Or, oh yes, they rang the bell. I'm supposed to be with my breath. It's the end of the sitting. You know, you, you, know, you can do one breath and then you f- fall asleep or wander off and you try again and you wander off. And, um, and so, I know for some of you, it's been quite challenging. And, and, but that's kind of normal if you're tired and, uh, and you're still spinning from your concerns of, the, of, the, of your life before coming here. And so how do you meet that? How are you with that? And I know for me, in some of my early retreats, I had a lot of self-criticism and a lot of anger and discouragement. And I made a lot of conclusion. The mind, the mind is kind of a, one of the functions of the mind is to make meaning, meaning-making mind. And so... Uh, some of the meaning was mean. <laughs> and so I would uh, make meaning like, you know, Gil, this means that you shouldn't be doing this. this Gil, this means you're a, a total... It was Zen back then, right? So you're a Zen failure. Now, only now I realize that's a form of praise. But I didn't know that then. <laughs> to fail at Zen is pretty good. The um, So... Um, So how to be present for tiredness? Just being present without making any meaning, without getting caught up in the reactivity against it, 
or, or the judgment it should be different, is I think a very profound thing to do. It's a training to learn that, to hold it. It's not the end of the story. It's not like you're supposed to just accept your life completely as it is, because that wouldn't be Buddhism. The idea in Buddhism is to discover an allowing presence through which something can be born, something can mature and grow, where freedom can grow, where wisdom can grow and understanding can grow, and and the theme of this talk, where compassion can grow, where this kind of the heart's compassion, this gentle compassion, this tender compassion, that comes when we stay relaxed. And then there might be all kinds of protests. It's not okay to be relaxed. And many of us get, get all kinds of lessons from family and society around us that the way that maybe we show that we care is by worrying, worrying, or being anxious, or getting tense. How can you show that you care about the distress of someone else when you stay relaxed? That doesn't work, right? We think, that's the protest. But in fact, I've seen over and over again that when we come from the heart, the compassionate heart, the relaxed heart, and stay present in a very simple way, it seems to be one of the great gifts we can give people. One of the things I do is I train uh, people to do Buddhist chaplaincy, to be chaplains in places like... Uh, hospitals and prisons and hospices. And one of the things that uh, is most helpful in times of these, and usually that means uh, uh, offering spiritual care for people going through crisis. Uh, they're dying, someone they know is dying, someone's dead, they're in prison, that's a crisis, they have serious illness, that's a crisis. Their life has been turned upside down, very challenging. And this, the number one thing that seems to be most helpful is, is uh, for, uh, from the point of view of the chaplain, what the chaplain can do is to be present with that person, just to offer their presence, to be with them. And one of the things that, um, uh, one of the important trainings that any chaplain needs to learn to be a good chaplain is uh, how not to get caught up in the fix-it mind. That's a technical word in the chaplaincy circles, the fix-it mind. And um, because the fix-it mind, you have to go in, you know, you're not going to you know, fix their dying. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And uh, fix their illness, fix their suffering. Uh, there's sometimes things you can do and be helpful. But before that, the, the primary thing is still to be present. And, and in looking for candidates to accept into our chaplaincy program, one of the things that I really value a lot is people who've done the kind of retreats you're doing here. People who learn how to sit in silence and be present day after day in deep silence touch the capacity of presence in themselves that translates to them being able to offer this compassionate presence to others in a beautiful way. People who haven't learned how to sit still and be present, sit still and be compassionate, really still, in the face of whatever is going on, will find it very hard to offer that to others in chaplaincy. So, to relax, to be here and be relaxed with what's here. Now, I know uh, it can be hard to be present. It's hard to be mindful. The mind can spin out very quickly. And so I'd like to offer you a very simple, what I call a mindfulness practice, using a kind of a note, a mental note, that uh, maybe can make it really simple and helpful to ground you here. And that is to use the word here. H-E-R-E. And not the kind of... Don't say here like, here like you would to a dog, like a command. 
but simply uh, very softly as an acknowledgement that this is where you are. You're here, here. And, and then in that saying that here, don't be concerned about what here is like, like it should, that it has to be different, that you're supposed to get concentrated, you're supposed to be mindful, but say here, and then be awake or pay attention to notice what is here. Here is a person whose mind is distracted. That's all you need to know. Here, a distracted mind. This is what a distracted mind is like. Here is someone who's lost in the future. You're not really lost in the future if you can say that. But here, this is what it's like to be thinking about future. Here, this is what it's like to be tired. Here, this is what it's like. Just here, just say the word here. And then and, and the word here is kind of like making space and openness that how we are, what's going on for us, can be the way it is. It's okay. We can allow for it. And then we notice what it is. With permi- kind of with permission. Like there doesn't have to be something different. It's not like you have to judge it as bad that whatever is here is here. Whatever is here is what we open to in mindfulness. And I find that when my mind is really distracted and spinning out to it a lot, if I say the word here in a regular way, here, then here, and just notice what's here. Maybe I can only do it for a moment, but that moment counts for a lot. And then I say it again and have another moment. And then I begin to gather myself. I begin to settle and arrive and come more here. At some point, it's easier and easier to be here. And then I can go into my breath and start kind of focusing on the breath and continuing the process. It's a very simple act of presence here. It's a wonderful training that we do here to learn to be present, to be here. Sometimes I imagine that um, I'm an anthropologist from a Martian anthropologist that somehow has access to the inside of this human being here. And so when I say here, the anthropologist gets interested. What's it like to be a person who's distracted? What's it like to be a person who's agitated? What's it like to be a person who's concentrated? And I just kind of like, oh, this is how it is. This is how it is. To keep it really simple. With that, we develop sensitivity. With that, we're becoming more aware, more sensitive to what is. And is that enough to do it that way? I mean, it's, you know, your own particular neurosis here, you know, just aware of this catastrophe, this bumbling fool, this kind of situation, is this, you know, they can't, this, the, all of this great world religion of Buddhism can't really just come down to this. <laughs> that can't be enough, can it? So all the protests come in. The protests are the protests of the head of thoughts, the preoccupations that we have. And those get in the way of developing this deeper sensitivity. So here's another story. After lunch one day, the abbess and a visiting professor, philosophy professor, went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a large tree. The professor asked, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, 
we don't rely on any philosophy at the monastery. But, continued the professor, everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has a philosophy with which to make sense of their life and their purpose. It is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy with which to which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, As we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we had become from our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. If you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying from hunger, The need to feed the child is obvious to the parent. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery, the monks and nuns are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. So to be sensitive, to be aware, to cultivate what I like to call the heart's awareness. So not thinking about things, not being aware, mediated through thoughts and ideas so much as through the our capacity to be present and still, present and, and, and register and feel the fullness of what's happening here and now. And sometimes the danger of mindfulness instruction, it can seem um, verbal or thoughtful rather than mindful, where we kind of think what's going on, maybe very simple thoughts, um, like labels or something, and somehow we're supposed to kind of like understand what's going on through the vehicle of our thoughts. It isn't that thoughts are wrong or bad to have in practice, they have their role, but I think the, the real depth and fullness and possibility of this practice doesn't come through, through thinking, but comes, in a way, through our body through this wider sensitivity of body and heart, through that which we feel and sense and be present for. And that's why I like the, the word presence. Um, not a presence of some you know, spirit or something, but the presence of the felt sense of being present. Being present, being aware. Awareness is not, it kind of, kind of flows or radiates from us when we're still, when we're here, when we're relaxed. So it turns out that to be relaxed is the door to both wisdom and compassion. It's the door to both um, compassion and liberation. It's the door to mindfulness. It's really important to discover how to be at ease or relaxed. And part of the training here, and we retreat like this, is to learn to recognize how we might be tense, how we might be striving and tightening down how the very way in which we're being mindful um, maybe has, uh, has um, striving as part of it, maybe fear is about it, part of it, sh- all the shoulds, maybe has a lot of sense of self, you know, I better accomplish this, I better prove myself. One of the, uh, you know, I remember when I was a Zen student um, doing competitive meditation. You know, it's a good one. You, you, it's a, it's a, and nowadays I realize that uh, we all, you know, if it's competitive meditation, like a race or something, 
It's a great one because we all arrive in the present moment at the same time. But back then I didn't know that. So back then I thought, you know, it's the person who could sit up straightest and longest. That uh, that was the person who somehow got the badge or I don't know what they give in Zen, but, you know, somehow that would be you know, a better Zen student. And, and, um, and one of the kind of Zen traps, because form and shape and sitting up straight is really valued in Zen, one of the, um, you know, great traps uh, fits under the category of um, looking good. That uh, somehow the better you look, the more Zen you are. So sitting up straight, looking, you know, whatever. And so I, I succumbed to that. And I remember sometimes we had this late night sitting that was required, was optionally required. <laughs> they said it was optional, but that was the rhetoric. But in practice, it was obligatory. And the thing about the late night sitting was uh, it had no end. <clears throat> And it would just be open-ended. So everybody had to sit there, and then you had to kind of decide on your, on your own when to go to bed. So how do you decide, right? Well, I wasn't going to go to bed before he went to bed. Because, you know, I was sitting there, and I was, well, you know, what's he doing sitting up? Or is she doing sitting up so late, you know, sitting up so straight? She's not meditating. I know she's not meditating. I'm, I'm going to show how you do this. <laughs> well, guess who wasn't meditating? <laughs> I was busy looking good. <laughs> So, uh, that's not present. Looking good. So these traps we fall into, but to relax and to see, see you know, what our tendency is, to understand the approaches we have and how there might be tension or straining or stress or tightening in the very approach we have, or perhaps in the form of resistance. Not this. I'm not going there. I'm not going to experience that. And so the resistance is where the stress is. And it can take a lot of courage to relax when there's a lot of resistance, when we don't want to face something and look at something. But the doorway to this practice is to, at least metaphorically, sit up straight and relax. And relax with something deeper that's not your thinking mind, that's not your ideas, that's not your shoulds and imaginations of what's supposed to happen or your expectations or your agendas, but allow something that's deeper to bubble up and arise for you. And, you know, it's remarkable that just simple presence, keeping it really simple, and just being present and doing it continuously, staying in there and being present over and over again, coming back here, here, here. It's really remarkable that it doesn't require a PhD in philosophy or even a PhD in Buddhism. Two young men happened to enter the monastery on the same day. One was an aristocrat who had a sense of entitlement. The other was a son of local farmers who had spent his life working on the family farm. During their entrance interview, the abbess asked them why they were becoming monks. The aristocrat said that he had come to climb to the highest achievement of human life, to experience the bliss, the glory, and the brilliant light of liberation. The peasant said, I am poor and unschooled, and I have no hope for enlightenment. However, I hope to find the path in the everyday activities of my life. May I see the truth in the food I eat, in the work I do, 
and the people I encounter. Within six months, the peasant was graced with liberation. The aristocrat is still striving on courageously. So be careful. So here's a story. In this story, the title of the story is very important. And this, this, uh, the title is Wisdom and Compassion. So keep that in mind. When it was time <clears throat> for the monastic community to meditate, the new nun headed for the meditation hall. Placing her shoes on the shoe rack, she looked down and saw they were not lined up parallel to each other. This helped her to see that she was slightly distracted due to the excitement of her first day in the monastery. Letting go of her distraction, she looked more carefully at what was in front of her. She saw that her shoes were old and worn. Remembering when they were new, she reflected on how all things are transient and how quickly they change. Soon, she thought, I will be an old nun in this monastery. Reflecting on how precious each moment was, she reached down to straighten her shoes. Doing so, she noticed that if she moved them to the left, then there would be space for another pair of shoes to the right of hers. Thinking of the other monks and nuns who were coming to the meditation hall, she gently pushed her shoes to the side. Happy, the new nun entered the meditation hall. That's an example of wisdom and compassion in action. Isn't that simple? Direct, immediate, present here. And she entered the hall happy. There's something about compassion because it involves a certain kind of relaxation of the heart that it's one of the kind of public secrets of Buddhism is it's one of the ways to become happy is to have this heart compassion. And now we know from science that uh, when, when we're relaxed and there's relaxed compassion operating through us that uh, it seems that in some people uh, the, the, the body releases oxytocin which is this great hormone that um, makes people feel, feel good. And um, so there's kind of biological kind of basis for some of the feel-good feeling that come with compassion. And it's kind of an odd feeling because it comes with a certain kind of shared feeling of shared pain with someone else. But when we're relaxed, the, in part maybe one of the reasons why we have this oxytocin, this feel-good feeling, is uh, then we're more likely to respond positively to act on that. So there's two great, from growing up, I, there was a, I learned a phrase in English that probably you all learned early on too, called uh, the uh, fight or flight instinct. So that was the end of the story growing up. In recent years, I learned the opposite. I didn't realize it was the opposite. I thought it was it fight or flight. What other options do you have? <laughs> I learned there's another one. And the opposite is approach and soothe. Approach and soothe. And when there's fight and flight instinct that kicks in, there's all these physiological changes that go on in our body. Uh, the breathing gets quicker and, and, uh, and we're up in the chest and the heart rate goes faster and all kinds of things got sweating and all kinds of things happen. We gear up, we gear up to kind of do something. When there's the approach and soothe instinct is triggered, it also has a physiological effect on us. 
the heart rate decreases, the breathing relaxes more fully. Um, and uh, I think they also the pores open up in the skin. There's a variety of kind of things that actually feel much really good begin happening when we approach and soothe. To approach and soothe requires, or to respond to suffering uh, from a place of this heart compassion, this relaxed compassion, hopefully requires some wisdom. The wisdom where we understand how to approach in a wise way. How to approach without being caught up in our self-centeredness, our self-concern. And it has to be that way because to be self-centered and self-preoccupied is to is to get preoccupied, is to get caught up and narrow the focus of attention. And then there's no space for the heart's compassion when we're fixated on self-concern and our own egotistical desires. So in order for the heart's compassion to operate, there has to be a letting go of selfishness, of self-preoccupation. And that's a good thing because the the selfishness and self-preoccupation is a form of suffering limits our life. To relax deeply, we have to let go of the self-preoccupation. And that's part of the, one of the answers to people who tell you, isn't it pretty selfish to meditate? You're just focusing on yourself? Because it can be. And uh, as a teacher, sometimes I hear people uh, talk about their practice, and they're talking about themselves usually when they talk about their practice. And sometimes I kind of squint and look more carefully, at least metaphorically. And, and I said, I don't know if I can, do, I, I'm not a little confused here between the difference between healthy self-focus to looking at their own process and being narcissistic. And it's, sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's not so clear where exactly it is. But I don't have to know so much so I can relax my squint because the practice is self-correcting. If you're mindful, and you focus on where you're tense, you'll soon enough learn how self-preoccupation, selfish preoccupation, um, it gets in your own way. And you can't be selfish if you meditate really well because selfishness is an obstacle to this deeper relaxation that needs to happen. So we sit here, and the first day of the retreat, for some of you is was wonderful, and it's, it's a relief to be here from whatever you came from. And some of you find the first day extremely challenging. And it's all okay. All the options, all the ways that you are here are fine. And one of the ways, things I really want to convey to all of you, that whatever you, however you are today, whatever your experience, whatever difficulties you had, whatever joys you had, whatever your experience was, that there's a way in which it was all, it's all okay. And we're trying to meet it and hold ourselves in a new way. And this idea of being simple presence points also to one of the conditions that helps give birth to compassion. If you're, you, it's, I don't think it's possible to will compassion. Compassion doesn't belong, that's not not something intentional. Let me be compassionate here. What we do is we create the conditions and we can cultivate compassion, create the conditions for it to arise and to grow, but we can't necessarily will it. And and one of the primary or one of the important ways in which compassion is cultivated is through relaxation. 
but closely connected to that is, <clears throat> is compassion arises when we feel safe. Uh, children who don't feel safe growing up have a hard time feeling compassion when they're adults. They can, of course, it can happen that way, but it's much harder to have that flow easily. And, um, and unfortunately, too many people don't feel safe in this life. Too many, lots of people. They don't live in neighborhoods where they feel safe. They don't live in families they feel safe. They feel communities they don't feel safe. Um, and for good reason. Many years ago, after we opened this retreat center here, Spirit Rock got a letter from um, a woman who had been on retreat here, thanking uh, Spirit Rock for the experience here. And she said that um, <clears throat> it was the first time in her life that she f- was at a place where she could feel safe. She, she didn't lock her door here. It was the first time in her life she didn't have to lock her door. She was able to walk in the hills here <clears throat> and she felt safe. She was able to be around people who were strangers and she felt safe. And it was remarkable for her that this was, a, you know, it was, it was remarkable to me to hear the story, this is the first time in her life that someone could spend a lifetime not feeling safe. <clears throat> so one of the things that mindfulness does, one of the purposes of mindfulness kind of practice here, is to discover safety, <clears throat> a certain kind of safety, the kind of safety that's maybe available here and now in the present moment when there's no external threats happening. And for the most part, I would say, that there's very little threats here in this meditation hall. And if you ever feel afraid, uh, some people find it helpful to just open your eyes and look around and realize that actually there's nothing here that's really too threatening, you know, except maybe the person near you is trying to look good (laughs) or trying to compete with you and see who can walk the slowest in the walking hall. (laughs) But you don't, you know, that's not really, it's so dangerous. But, but to cultivate, to sit here, <clears throat> and you don't have to necessarily intentionally do it, but to sit here, you don't even have to know, know that it's happening. But there's something about the releasing, the letting go, lowering our guard, lowering our resistance, that sometimes people, people, some people spend a lifetime bracing themselves. And the bracing themselves against life can be very subtle in the, kind of, in the small little fibers of their muscles in their body. It's kind of a little, little tense and held to relax and to feel safe is one of the great gifts you can give yourself. And as we feel safer, then it's a lot easier to come forth with compassion. And chances are that you're much safer than you realize. And one of the wonderful teachings and irritating teachings of Buddhism uh, is that... uh, the primary person you need to worry about is yourself. And so if you can really kind of learn to be safe from yourself, then the experience of relaxation, of peace, of compassion is a much easier time to appear for you. And how do you learn to be safe from yourself? You learn to be mindful. You can't be, you have to be able to be mindful enough to see what is, to recognize what's going on inside of you, to recognize how you're mean to yourself, how you're angry, how you're afraid, how you're despairing, how you're uh, you know, reacting for and against things. 
and to really see it. And when you see it, to let it just be the seeing of it. You don't have to add anything to that. Don't make yourself worse off. To see that you're, you know, that you're filled with anger, resentment towards something, then you can get angry that you're resentful. Then you can get embarrassed because you're angry that you're resentful. And then you can despair that you're embarrassed, that you're angry, that you're resentful. And it can just be spiraled pretty quickly. What we're trying to do here is to experiment, to train ourselves, to try to discover how to see what goes on inside of us and be really simple with it, just see it. There is a resentment. Let me hold the resentment gently. Let me hold you be present for it. Remembering that presence is such a powerful thing. Let me just be present for me, the way that a chaplain might be present for someone in the hospital. I don't have to fix it, I don't have to do much about it. Just feel it and be there with it. And so the, the, the very act of being present for us in that compassionate way, kind way, relaxed way, um, is part of how we do cultivate compassion, but it's also how we provide ourselves with a feeling of being safe from ourselves, not adding more arrows on top of the arrows. So feeling safe is such an important thing to experience. And my really sincere hope is that uh, as we conduct and hold and organize and put on these retreats, that all of us are participating in helping to create a really safe environment where it feels okay to stop bracing ourselves or to relax and to soften. To evoke compassion as the container for how we're here together. Compassion that helps us all to see our shared humanity. The shared humanity of sharing in the difficult life, a challenging life we all have, and to hold it with some, hold each other and hold our life and hold ourselves with a certain kind of acceptance or tenderness or caringness for what we're up against and how difficult it is and a certain kind of being each other's cheerleaders. Yes, you can do it. You can, you can find your way up through the sacred sites of Buddhism. You can find the peace that's on the other side or the peace that's found through really being honest and being present for this life as it actually is. That's maybe enough. I think I'll end with one more story, if I may. I hope you like stories enough. These are stories I wrote. So, um, distractions. Some of you know about distractions now, right? A young monk complained of having too many distractions to be able to meditate. He explained to the abbess that he had tried every possible approach to overcome the distractions. He had redoubled his efforts at concentration. He had been diligent in trying to let the distractions go. He had also tried many antidotes, including ignoring them. But none of these approaches worked. Um, Uh, 
And so he even tried turning towards the distractions to include them as part of the meditation. He had also investigated the reactions, the feelings, the beliefs he had in relation to the distractions. None of this had helped. He remained plagued. In that case, said the abbess, there remains only one thing for you to do. Please gaze upon the distractions with kindness and be still. Gaze upon your difficulties with kindness and be still. So whatever is bothering you, whatever is troubling you, whatever makes it really hard to do this practice here, that's your practice. Turn towards the very difficulty you have, if nothing else works, and look upon it kindly and be still. Soft stillness. So let's... um, it's often the custom here at Spirit Rock at the end of the talk to regather into the kind of meditation mindfulness mode by taking a few moments to sit again before so you take your posture. And if you'd like, you can close your eyes. Look upon your life, look upon your life kindly and be still. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.